Welcome to the Be Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Ergen. Recently, I sat down with Hannah Paramore Breen to discuss her new book, Business Ownership, The Joy, The Pain, The Truth. This is the first of a three-part series, and I really hope you enjoy it. In this first episode, Hannah and I chat about how she fell into the world of digital media and created her namesake agency. Here's Hannah. Well, I'm from Nashville, almost originally. We moved here when I was five years old, so I consider myself a native, and I am married to a wonderful person, uh, Bill Breen. I have a couple kids, a whole bunch of grandchildren, too many to name, um, and I owned a business here in Nashville for 15 years. I sold it in 2016, and so that's what the book is about. All right. So what inspired you to put your story into writing? So tell me what about your story made you want to write this book? It, it seems very cathartic. Um, why do you feel like you need to write the book and tell your story? Well, that's a good question. I, um, I think my personal style of leading the company um, was always a storytelling style. You know, everything that we did uh, started with a, a story. Uh, every presentation at every conference where I ever spoke, which is one of the ways I built my business, uh, was, was very much storytelling based. I think it's the way you draw people in. And so I think people look to me for stories in the first place. And that's the question that I got over and over immediately was, are you going to write about this? Um, I have a I have a blog where I, I write about the lessons that I've learned in business and in life, and that's on my website. Um, and I think that it was cathartic for me. Um, p- selling my business was painful. Um, owning my business was painful. And um, at the same time that it was great, it was painful. And so I, I feel like in some ways the book is the end of that chapter for me, that chapter of my life. It's me saying, this is what happened, and trying to do something good, you know, out of what happened and not less, not necessarily not to let it die. I don't, I don't mind it being over. It's so it was, it's not really me trying to keep it alive. It's, um, I feel like there are some lessons in there for, um, for some people. I'd like to see that. Um, I'd like to see what I know to be being used that way. Who is the ideal reader for this book? What, what would they get the most, who would get the most from reading it? Yeah, when, when you go through a process of publishing, you really have to nail that, you know. Um, so I had, to, I had to get real about it. And it really is uh, business owners between 30 and 60 years old who want to know what to do with what they've built. And that is a foundational question of every business owner um, anywhere. I've been in a lot of different um, CEO roundtable groups. One of them is called Entrepreneurs Organization I was in for seven or eight years. I was in a Vistage Roundtable group also after that. And that's the number one topic of conversation. Um, it's not really, I mean, some of that conversation is about making your business better. A lot of it is, but a whole lot of that conversation is what is your exit plan? And so business owners, I feel like, they feel like they're supposed to have one. They're supposed to know what it is. And I think that most business owners don't know what it is. Uh, I didn't think that I would be fortunate enough to ever sell my business. I mean, it was a custom creative services business. My question was always, what is it that you actually have to sell in a custom creative services business with with very few long-term contracts and no employment contracts with your employees because I'm in Tennessee, which is a right to work state. So I didn't know how, how you could ever sell something like that. It's not a tangible product like a laptop or a fork or a pen. You know, it's, I don't have a warehouse full of websites that are already built waiting for somebody to come pick up one, you know. Um, so I, 
so I always felt you know, like like I didn't I didn't ever know the answer to that question. And there's so much pressure in the entrepreneurial world to know the answer to that question. And I think that sometimes the end of a business is a successful acquisition and sometimes it's closing the business. And whatever way it is, I mean, I think it can be the right decision for you, but you, you're gonna spend most of the time owning a business not knowing what your exit plan is. I don't think that people should feel like failures because there's a lot of businesses that can't know that. So when you first um, started your digital career, it was back in what year? Oh, 1996 or 7, like a long time ago. A long time ago, ago. yeah. So you worked at CitySearch.com? CitySearch.com, yeah. Yeah. So um, at one point in the book, you talked about how it was a great experience for you, but you felt like, the people who you were recruiting, you should should be working for yeah, you. Yeah, after I left City Search, what happened is the um, I went with another startup. I, I stayed with City Search for three years, and and City Search went public during that time, and we had to roll out across the nation very fast. And so I was on the rollout team because Nashville was a beta test market for City Search. So I had these like two and a half years of perfection in business, which means there was venture capital money and no expectations, you know, <laughs> because there wasn't any history. So we could just do things, you know, and try things. It was the most fun I'd ever had. And then um, we became a public company, so all that fun was over. And my only only option for me to stay with the company from then on was for me to move to a major market, Chicago, New York, LA, Dallas. And I wasn't in a position to move. I had two teenagers and I was a single parent. And so that really was not an option for me. So I took another job with another startup here, which ended after about six months. And then I took another job and then 9-11 happened and that um, that went away. And then I took another one. So I literally, I literally lost my job four times in two years just because through the bust, the, the bust happened during that time also, the dot-com um, bubble burst and I you know you could I could always get a job but I couldn't keep the job because the jobs would just disappear overnight so at, by the end of that fourth job um, the people who were calling me were the people who ought to be working for me I would I found out they'd be like I don't know 24 years old and I was like I don't think so it 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 really I really had like a moment where I just crossed over into another space where I felt like what I had been doing by taking these risky jobs in a risky industry uh, was stupid. And I was safer to go out on my own and take some clients on my own. And that's a crossover moment. And when it happens, it's real, you know, it's, it's very freeing and it's terrifying. So, Paramore Digital was born out, mm-hmm. out of this. Out of that. Out of that. So, it was a mistake. I mean, not a mistake. It was an accident. You yeah. know, it was, a, but not a mistake. It, I didn't really think that I was in. That I was actually starting a business at the time. I thought I would just take a couple of contracts, and then my next thing would come along. You know, and then 15 years later, I had an offer to sell to sell that uh, thing that had it had become. Well, if you, you know, Post-it notes were a mistake too. So. That's, that's right. They were so, good mistake. Good things come out of mistakes. So you, you created Paramore Digital, um, and it filled a niche between kind of the traditional agency, mm-hmm. the you know the the you know traditional advertising agency, and the mega. Uh, you mentioned Razorfish, mm-hmm. which was a big you know mm-hmm. agency back in the day. 
So you started the agency to kind of fill in that niche. How did you, in the early days of digital media, how did you tell people what you did? It was so difficult to understand yeah. because the internet was so young. How did, how did you message that? I'm trying to figure out, trying to remember how long it was before I actually called it a digital agency because for a long time I was calling it online marketing. And um, so people would say, well, what is that? And I'd say, well, we build websites. And, um, and you know those things that like ad agencies do, like when they do campaigns on radio, outdoor, TV, and print? We do the same thing, but everything we do is on the internet. That's what I would say. So we would do email marketing, and we do banner advertisements. Well, they were called banners. You know, we weren't called, called display ads. There was no such thing as search marketing at the time. And in fact, email service providers were, were really starting to like, become mainstream at the same time that I started my business. So they had been in existence, but only for like proprietary sort of systems, you know, or big companies. They weren't for the everyday marketer. So the idea, I, mean, I was just so happy when Clint Smith sent me um, some information about Emma, and I thought, who needs a website? I could just do this, you know. So, and I was in the website business. I, I didn't know at that point I was in the website business. Um, so yeah, I just I tried to explain it to them in terms that they understood, and this is one of the one of the kind of business principles that I lived by for a long time is that complexity gets in the way of a sale. So you need to simplify everything for a consumer for them to buy it. And so I would say to them, um, was people would get caught up in that conversation about like what software will you, will you use to build our website or how will you how do you how do you do that digital media plan? And I would say to them, you know, when you hire your traditional agency to shoot a television spot for you, you don't ask them what kind of camera they're going to use or what kind of software they're going to use to edit your spot. You talk to them about who your audience is and what your message is. And that's what we're going to talk about because technology is my problem. It's not your problem. And that would get them off of that, you know. And so then we could have a marketing conversation or a branding conversation or we could have a, an audience conversation. So we would say, we will find your audience online and then we'll tell you how we're gonna do it. But right now you don't have to worry about that. And so everything that we do now that's really typical in, in um, online advertising and digital advertising is, was brand new then. Nobody knew, I mean, it was, it was at the point like display advertising. If you wanted your, your, um, your ad to run on a specific site, you would call the owner of the site. You know, there weren't any networks. It was, it was very much like local television, which stood alone. And then all of a sudden we had cable television, which put together a whole bunch of small local television stations. And then, you know, it's, it grew from there. So um, display advertising was the same. You could just you'd go call the Tennessean and you'd send your creative to somebody over at the Tennessean to put it on their site. And then you'd call, you know, the scene and you'd want to put it over there or you'd call... Yeah, you, there was no national network buys or anything like that. It was the same process time. as if you were running a print ad. Exactly. Exactly the same process. Exactly yeah. the same process. Yeah. And now it's completely different. Now it's not. So the first move was from single site placement to networks. So then there were there were companies that, that created networks so they could serve your ads through their network to a whole bunch of different sites. So then you were just buying a demographic, just like you do when you're buying a print circulation in a national magazine. The next move after that was programmatic. So now you're buying a person, like I'm buying, you know, people like Jenny, um, you know, who are, she's a young mother, professional, lives in East Tennessee, and she shops at Nordstrom's and everything else online, you know. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the way that, that advertising moved. It moved from single site placement to networks to programmatic. Yeah. But, that, but, but getting the customer off of having, feeling like they had to understand the technology, which was a block you know, to, to sales. We, if they felt like they had to understand what we were doing, they wouldn't buy. You know, so we had to move them off of that and get them into a conversation that they were used to having, which was about their company and their market and their products and their customers. And, yeah. Did you feel like in the early days that you would uh, talk about tactics and strategies with customers and then go back and figure out how to do it? Oh, because absolutely. Because you've never done it before? For years, for <laughs> years, probably six years, every time I sold something, our company had never actually done it before. Mm -hmm. And, and my team, I'd come running in, I'd be like, hands in the air, you know? And they'd be like, I sold such and such, and they would like turn white. They'd be like, what? I mean, we've never, I'd be like, no problem, no problem. I mean, we, we ran our first, our, our first digital buy, a, a digital display buy for a major television network. They were launching a new program, and we had never done this before. And we had to find an ad serving network in California the night before. I mean, I'm, I'm serious, it was crazy. And our, our campaigns were supposed to fly the next day. I'd never heard anything. I'd never even knew what that was. You know, I never worked for an agency before. So anyway, it well, was and, and you mentioned that. So you never worked for an agency before and you created an agency. I did do And that. so, you know, agencies, by stereotype are very fun places to work. Mm -hmm. You know, in the in the typical stereotype, they have a ping pong table, which you actually two. did. We had yeah, two. yeah, two. Yeah. Um, but they're fun. People dress casually. They, you know, there's just all kinds of fun and frivolity in the office. There's dogs. There's all kinds of stuff. So when you created Paramore and the agency culture, did you just dream up the fun model? Did you base it on something? I based it on City Search. I mean, City Search was a we didn't know it at the time, but it was a media company. You know, it was a content and media company. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was full of young people. It was where it was the first time I didn't have to wear a suit to work. I, it, I never bought a pair of pantyhose after I started working for City Search ever again. You know? <laughs> pantyhose were invented the year I was born, as you know, that 1959. Wow. So we were tight. <laughs> <laughs> literally. But yeah, <laughs> literally. But no, I never, I, it changed everything. Um, it changed all of my expectations. I mean, if you think about, um, you're younger than me, but when in the first half of my career, you weren't supposed to be friends with the people that you worked with. It was actually discouraged. Yeah, so there was no going out to work for a drink. You know, there was no vacationing together. There was no let's all go to the show. There was none of that. We all we clocked out at five o'clock and ran home to our kids, and um, you know that was what it was. And City Search changed my life, and um, and I really wanted to replicate that uh, experience. You know, and. And through the process of like leaving City Search and working in a couple of other uh, startups, I, I got some pretty high-profile jobs. So I was fortunate in that that I got to um, to meet with a lot of different types of people, which is how I had the idea to start doing what I did, which became um, Paramore Digital, even though I had never worked for an agency. I knew that there was a gulf. There was a big missing piece in agencies. They did not understand digital at all. And they couldn't hire digital people because at the time, um, their, their, their customers were starting to expect that they would understand digital strategy and what should I do with my website and how can I, you know, shouldn't I be advertising online? And, um, 
and they so their customers were asking for it and they were just sliding it into a box like print and radio and outdoor when it was a very very different animal um and so but even though it started to grow for them the their billing started to grow if you're only five or ten percent of the overall revenue of an agency you're not going to get very much attention and so good digital people wouldn't stay in traditional agencies at the time i don't know how it is now but at the time there was just tremendous turnover and and there were very few um, regulations in the industry there still aren't a lot of regulations but back then there were there weren't even any standards because the industry hadn't been around long enough and agencies start to itch if there aren't standards, you know, and they don't want to bring other people into their client relationship because they're afraid that they're going to lose business to these young upstarts that they've brought in. And they did mm-hmm. um, because it's completely different. Uh, it's still different and it's still hard for agencies to keep digital talent because the we don't in digital you have to have a longer term focus and an understanding that change is going to be constant and you have to be building not for just a campaign but for to support an entire brand and you have to adopt that you have to understand and embrace that that this change is going to be continual we're going to continue to develop this brand online and it's not just about a single ad campaign where agencies live from ad campaign to ad campaign so they wanted to redo everything, you know, um, not understanding that, that that was death to the online consumer mm-hmm. and to your brand online. So just the, 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 the misperception of, of how to uh, integrate digital, you know, into the traditional advertising strategies was just huge. So I saw that gap, you know, and, um, and I felt like I could fill that, fill that gap. Um, and so from a strategy perspective, I could fill the gap, but I'm not a designer and I'm not a developer. And so I could only take it so far before I had to start hiring people. That's when I found out that I really am a finisher by nature. You know, I like, I like to see ideas completely finished and, um, you can't do that without building a team. So one of the, one of the key chapters in the book is centered around clients and, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of your core values at Paramore was honor the client. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you do that and still be able to have frank and direct conversations with your clients about their strategy? I know I know there's several parts in the book that talk about how the, you know really bad situations when the mm-hmm. client thinks they're smarter marketer than you are. And how do you kind of work with them? You know, kind of work with them because they do have expertise in their industry. Mm-hmm. But how do you honor the client and still, you know, tell them and give them what they need yeah. and what they what's going to be great for their business? It's really hard, and especially I think with creative companies because creative companies are full of young people for a reason. They have a lot of energy. They are not bound by the status quo. They, you know, have fewer um, defined boundaries around the way they think. Um, and all those things are good. What they don't have is, is a deep business acumen. And so it's, it's hard to keep them enthusiastic about the customer um, and keep them listening to the customer. You know, they just want the customer to buy their creative idea. You know, so it's very hard. 
And customers, you know, clients are, um, it's, it's, it was one of the hardest parts of running the business is the change that I saw in clients. And this is another thing that technology has done is it has opened up the, um, it's kind of pulled back the kimono, you know, on all of the processes that used to be veiled and shielded by agencies, you know, so that they could control the deliverable and control the process and keep the client tied to them. You know, we made a decision not to tie the client to us through technology. So we never wrote proprietary software. We didn't, we didn't uh, tie them up in long-term hosting contracts. We would turn all that over to them. Some agencies, even some digital agencies, make it very hard for a client to leave them. If a client wanted to leave us, we wanted to make it easy for them to go, you know, because if they want to leave you, it's going to be painful from then on out. So in order to, but back to your question, like how do you honor a client when you basically don't necessarily agree with them, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so we had a few ground rules in the office that helped us with this core value. And one of them was, um, if you are having a bad day with this client, you're not allowed to tell the person who sits next to you. Because that person has a different relationship with that client than you do and didn't just have that same experience that you had. But if you bleed all over your coworker about the client, then you've started a cancer in the agency and you cannot bring it back. So we didn't allow people to talk negatively about the client at all. So that was a ground rule. The second one was um, if, you, if you feel that badly about the client, then I had to help them address it with the client or their manager had to help them address it with the client. And we tried to have really transparent expectations, or rather conversations with our clients, and especially when we didn't agree on the strategy. We tried to educate. We did a whole series called Paramore University that we did, we probably did, I think we did seven sessions of Paramore University that was all about educating our clients on um, broader digital concepts so that also set us up more as the expert. You know, we would bring in outside speakers. It's a lot like your Be Bold conference, which the, where the, the longer term goal is to build stronger relationships. Well, the shorter term goal for us was to help, to help them to understand the complexities of the industry so that they could trust us. So one of the things that, that digital did have that was good that could help in that respect was, was a testing environment. You know, you could, test things a lot more quickly in digital than you could with traditional advertising. You know, so we, we, would, we would give them our advice and then let them make the decision and try to document. And it was so hard, so, so hard. The last thing that we would do is reevaluate the client relationships. And we got to the place that we knew that if we, if we could not honor that core value, if we couldn't act that out, then we had to resign the client. So it's hard to bring relationships back, you know, um, but with a client, in a client um, agency relationship, the mutual respect is super important. Um, and a lot of times, I mean, we did see clients over the years um, start to trust us more, you know, and, but, you know, I, I, I had to do a lot of therapy with my staff because the truth is that most people in business are not in very creative jobs. And so when a creative job comes into their company, you know, often through the marketing department, they just can't wait to get their hands on it, you know? And literally all good information, all input at the creative um, stage is good input. 
um, most of it you can't act on, but it's all good input because it creates buy-in, you know, and and you just have to hold the hands of your young staff and say, this is part of the process. This is what they have to do. I used to draw, so I wish this was visual, because I used to draw this thing on the, um, on the, the, the whiteboard in the office, I'd do a straight line, and then like a sun setting across the, across the horizon, you know, like this, and starting on the left and say, if our clients are here and we want them to get to the middle, we actually have to tell them that they need to go all the way over to the right because they're not gonna change that much. In fact, they're gonna change like this, incrementally. incrementally. And hopefully, if we get them here, we've had a big success, but we're gonna have to present that we want them to go all the way over to the right, you know, from the left to get them to center. Yeah. So you talked about um, having a young staff, and that's been a, um, a theme that kind of runs through your book and through your, really, the history of Paramore. Um, and you mentioned in the book, you don't, you didn't just build your team once, you had to build it over and mm -hmm. over again. So how, how do you do that, and at the same time, look for that next yeah. layer of management that you need in your company? So that is the key, what you just said yeah. right there. And my understanding of this actually started, uh, really got deeper when I wrote my own job description. I'm not sure if I put that in the book. Did I put that in the book? Yeah. Um, so there are only five things on my job description as a CEO. And the first one is to grow and mentor the leadership team. And the second one is to be the face of the company. Um, the third is to set vision and direction. So the face of the company is to the community outside. Uh, to set vision and direction, that's internal to manage the financials and to be available for key relationships. Those are the five things I would argue that should be on any CEO's job description. That's it, nothing else. Um, so the first one is to grow and mentor the leadership team because um, I can't run the whole company myself. So my first, my first uh, responsibility is to make sure that my vice president of production, creative, accounts, operations, all of my vice presidents needed to be um, in good shape, and I needed the closest relationships with those people. And then their number one item on their job description was to grow and mentor their team, number one. Because you can get so much more done through a team of people than you can by yourself, no matter how deep your expertise is. You can get so much more done in a company and in the world through a team of people. So you're constantly looking for that next person who needs to be on the leadership team. And your VPs should constantly, constantly be looking for the next person that would take their job or who would be, who, who would be promoted to a direct, director level under them. And if you can get them in the right headspace, which is not easy to do, it's not easy to keep them there, um, we never fired good people, ever. I mean, people, if they worked themselves out of a job, they were working themselves into another job. And that's the kind of creative atmosphere I would love to see small companies have. Like get rid of the fear that you're going to replace yourself because you've trained somebody well. Because if you, if you train that person well enough to, to do your job, there's gonna be another job for you. In fact, I had this idea, which I really wish, I really wish I could get somebody to try this idea. The, the job that burned out the most in our company was the director of development. Because development, is such a tough, tough part of the industry. It's continually changing, it never stops. If a, if a website is down, it's your head of development that's gonna get up in the middle of the night and try to figure out 
you know, the, the stress on that job to produce those sites is just enormous. I wanted to have a flock of geese um, sort of mentality about who led the department. You know, the flock of geese theory where there's one, one goose that's leading this whole, you know, band of geese that's flying through the air. When he gets tired, he falls back and somebody else comes up to the leadership position. That's what I wanted in my development department. I wanted to rotate leadership of the development department every six months because then that would give that really that great rock star the time to step back and just be in a support role and refresh and somebody else step up. And, and what I should have done is say, all of y'all are going to make the same money. I just figured this out the other day. I was talking to somebody else about this. I should have taken money off the table and said, everybody in that department is going to be paid the same salary. So it wouldn't have been a money issue. You know, so so then you could actually create redundancy, you know, because the team would be working on the standards, you know, and the guidelines together as a team. And then when one person starts to fail, that person steps back and it's no judgment on you because I get that you're in a high stress job. I mean, I really wish, I think it would work. Mm. But, you know, <laughs> I could never sell them on it. <laughs> Total fail. So um, tell us about... Going back to clients for a minute, mm-hmm. tell us about, and no names, but uh-huh. your greatest client experience and your worst client experience. Okay, I'll start with my worst, so I'm going to end well on the high note here. <laughs> um, our worst client experience was a company that wanted to create a marketplace for baby products, and they wanted it to be the Amazon of baby products. Well, I should have stopped right there. After this, after this client, after we exited this client uh anytime somebody came and said we want to be the next facebook i'd be like next what you're going to be is next so you're not you're going you're not going to be the next facebook you know the reason that this one got so bad was because of a thing that's that became very typical in digital which is that the client what the the client could not describe what they really wanted um and their expectations were completely out of whack with what their budget could afford. So in this case, they wanted customers to be able to create a profile to save their orders. So we did that. But when, but when they saw it, it wasn't Facebook. They, they basically wanted to recreate the Facebook experience inside this e-commerce store um, that focused on baby products. It's a really good thing. I can't remember the name of the company. Um, but it, you know, that expectation, see, here's a, the thing with digital is that the easier something is for a consumer, the harder it was to build, right? So what looks simple, like, well, you just upload a photo and you just link these profiles with these things that they bought and then they could do recommendations, reviews, you know, that's Amazon, Facebook stuff. And those people will never stop spending money. They're the biggest companies in the world. I mean, the five largest companies on the S&P are digital companies. You know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. What's the other one? There's one more. It's digital also. And so, the, you know, I, I used to say to, to our clients all the time, you know, you aren't going to make money on search on your, on your site. So your search isn't going to be as good as Google. But we used to say, oh, yeah, we can put Google search on your account because you can put a Google search bar that, you know, has some kind of intuition on it. You can do that. They license that. But it's never going to work like Google does. And they don't need it to because they could spend all of their money, all their marketing money on trying to make that happen. 
So that was a bad one. But that that's that's the kind of client that project that was tough, you know, is that the expectations of what they had seen and done online they could replicate on their very small budget, and it's it can't be done. So what was the what was that conversation like when you're you fired? To... <laughs> that's what it was like. <laughs> we're done. Yeah, it was on the phone um, with the team in the room. I was like, we're and we're done, yeah. you know, because he became very um, very brutal to the staff, you know, and you can't just can't let that happen. Right. The best client relationships sometimes um, sometimes were fairly small revenue clients. Like I will name these people: the Frist Art Museum. It's probably one of the best clients we ever had. We had them for twelve years, and that we didn't do a huge volume of work for them. We because they rebuilt the, we rebuilt their website like every six years, um, but they were um, they were great partners. Uh, they were good people to work with, and but we also had some really good tourism clients who um who where we got to do an abundance of work so we would build the core website we would um do millions of dollars of media campaigns so we could see it growing you know and we were at the table with them strategically and we could work with them over a period of years and that's one of the biggest issues between agency and client relationships it's like you never get to the good work in the first year like it takes a year to get to know to anybody and you know, failures in digital are so transparent versus in traditional media, it takes a long time to know that you failed with a, with a traditional agency. With a digital agency, failure is just obvious really, really fast. And so a lot of times the clients would make just knee-jerk uh, decisions and, um, and kick you to the curb, you know, or just kick you <laughs> or another before you've even really had a chance to do the good work. So, Paramore Digital, doing great, you're winning deals, mm -hmm. companies, you know, growing every year, you're getting notoriety, press is picking up on, you know, the things you're doing, mm -hmm. clients love you, um, things are going pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, at some point in the book, you say, and this is early on, you say that business ownership is a process of continual shedding. So, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it's a great... Um Sentence. It, actually, a lot of people have asked me that, and um, I, I don't know if, I, maybe I didn't do the job in the book of, of explaining that, but I'll tell you what it is now. Um, when you start a business, you're the expert. When I started by myself at my kitchen table, paid search was just becoming a thing, email service providers were just coming, becoming a thing. I was learning about them, and I could go into a room and with great authority just wow them on things that are now very simple, but back then they were groundbreaking, you know. Um, I could draw out wireframes. We didn't even know they were wireframes, but I'd be like, we put the picture over here, we put the words over here. Um, and and I could, um, I, my knowledge was very deep and getting deeper. When you decide that you're going to grow a company, you're making an intentional decision to go broad and not deep in your knowledge of your industry because the number one job, job, the number one thing on your job description is to grow and mentor the leadership team. So you shed being the expert. As you grow your leadership team and you now have two levels, three levels in the company, there's me, the VPs, everybody else. Eventually there was me, the VPs, the directors, and everybody else, the team. I realized one day 
that um, the next thing I had to shed was um, client relationships. Because if the clients all called me, then why did I have all those account managers? And then I realized one day that I had to shed my relationships with the team because the team needed to attach to, to their directors and their VPs. And so, you know, you shed a lot of things that you actually love doing as a business owner. And uh, you sit in your office and all you get is complaints. I was, I was, I mentioned this in the book, I think, that I was telling somebody about that one day and he said to me, of course all you get is complaints because everything else gets handled before it gets to your door. So you've given the fun parts of the business to everybody else and you're dealing with the things that nobody else can deal with and most of those things are not fun. So speaking of not fun, <clears throat> what was the first sign that started you thinking about um, either taking the next steps as a business owner or taking the next steps to not be a business owner? What, what was the first sign? Um, the first sign was those two major client losses that we had within a year of each other, both of which we were, we were blindsided by. And um, maybe we shouldn't have been blindsided, but we were. Um, both of those, we had done the best work that those clients had ever had. And they said it, it's the best work we've ever had, the best partner we've ever had. And you still lose the business. And when I realized, when I really realized that um, the work that you do for clients matters for a little while, but when it comes to defending your contract with them, it doesn't really matter. There's so much else that's going on behind the scenes that you do not know about, which is th that, that experience with those two clients is what gave me that learning that we don't really know what's happening. Like we don't know what's going on. You think you're having transparent conversations with your client, but they're not telling you everything. And in fact, to their, in, in their defense, that person that's our key contact probably doesn't know everything. Cause that's usually a VP of marketing or a director of marketing or something like that. And there's other things going on at the company that they don't even know about. And then there's the board of directors who have their own agenda, you know, for the company. And so by the time it filters down to you and the work you're doing, like you don't know what's happening and why people are making decisions that they're making. Um, and that was, that was, that was hurtful. You know, um, most of the time when agencies like mine lose big clients, you do layoffs at the company. But, um, we had not had that history. And in fact, um, we had always, we'd always grown even when we'd lost big clients. But the industry had started to change also just before all this happened. The industry started to change in around 2011, 12, something like that. And these two client losses happened in 13 and 14. So at the same time that we were losing the clients, some things were really, um, like some problems that we really couldn't figure out um, were happening also. And that was around just basically, what it boils down to business model. Do you outsource or do you hire and try to develop talent within? And we had always developed talent from within. And it had always worked for us. And it's very hard to change a core belief like that in a company. 
Um, and so to, you know, it, because people feel threatened, people don't know how to work any other way, you know. Um, also things were really changing in the development end of the whole industry. And so development was going a different direction. So there was a power shift, um, and I don't mean power shift in a bad way, but what I mean is that we had always made technology our problem, not our client's problem. So we, for a long time, could make all the technology decisions. So we went really deep on technology in a couple of different ways. But when, um, as WordPress became more sustainable, um, and there's a couple of other um, tools like that that became more reliable, um, and as our, as our clients the rest of their business outside of marketing also went digital. So all of a sudden there were core business functions to tie into under a marketing platform. So now there was like online billing, you know, or accounting, or accounts rather, you know, account profiles that needed to be brought into the brand website. And those would be on different types, built, uh, developed in, in different types of technology, right? So then while, while for the first two-thirds of the business, we could come to the table and say, no, we're going to build this in Expression Engine or we're going to build this in Craft because that's what we were very deep in and we were very um, efficient in. They, they could say, but we have to have Drupal or we have to have .NET because the rest of our company is running on this. So that takes the technology decision out of the agency's hands and puts it in the client's hands and that, that cut in half, at least in half, the number of opportunities that we could actually respond to. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help us get the word out. This Be Bold podcast is a production of Bank of Tennessee, member FDIC, equal housing lender.